0: Daniel Gilad is a sound engineer and music producer that has been working in the industry for over a decade. Music for me is about creating relationships through sound. Each piece of music has its own personality, quality, and design. It is a reflection of the artist's soul and a small window to their story. Daniel has provided services for live sound, studio production, mixing, and mastering to some of Hawaii's finest artists. It is my job to be able to translate it and shape it to be shared with the world. Traveling the Globe has exposed Daniel to a variety of music, cultures, and relationships. He brings this breadth of perspectives and experiences to his craft and has worked in many different genres, including folk, rock, hip-hop, world, pop, sound healing, and meditation. Contact Daniel at dgsoundcreations.com to learn more about how he can help you with your next creative project. dgsoundcreations.com for all of your audio production needs. I am pleased and honored to provide post-production services to What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast.
1: This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book, What School
2: Could Be. Hey everyone, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapun. We are near the end of season two and our series has earned close to 23,000 downloads. Thank you, my education friends. We will continue to bring you the stories of agile, adaptive and innovative public, public charter and private school educators and education leaders until we have achieved a thousand points of light. We are many va'a, one voyage, all in it for all kids on all islands. Speaking of a 1,000 Points of Light, today my guests are Raina Fairchild and Melissa Montoya, two charter school educators selected for the Hawaii State Teacher Fellows Program. To introduce them, I'm going to read the section of the Public Charter School Commission's newsletter announcing their appointments to the cohort. The Hawaii State Teacher Fellows Program brings together outstanding public school educators from across the state and provides teachers with peer and community engagement skills, tools to facilitate focus groups, along with communication and advocacy strategies. The program is run out of the Hawaii Department of Education's Leadership Institute. The competitive applications process includes submission of narratives, recommendations and an interview. When asked why she applied for the fellowship program, Melissa Montoya said, I wanted to be part of an organization that wants to elevate teachers outside of my own organization. I believe in collective and collaborative teams, so I am beyond ecstatic to engage in opportunities that support public education on a larger scale. Hawaii deserves a system that promotes excellence at all levels of education. Raina Fairchild said she applied for the program because I want to further develop as a teacher-leader. I have been fortunate to take on a teacher-leader role at my school and have had the opportunity to participate in national teacher-leader cohorts. Applying to be part of this special group that supports education at the state level seemed like a great fit for me. She adds, Hawaii has some amazing, talented educators. By helping to connect these teachers and working to support their classroom efforts, the practice of all is elevated. And now, here's my conversation with Reina Fairchild and Melissa Montoya. Melissa and Reina, welcome to the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast.
3: Aloha Mahalo for the opportunity to be here good morning so happy to be here
2: good morning so the journeys individuals embark on that result in becoming a teacher are super fascinating to me um, Melissa let's start with you what what's the thumbnail version of your journey towards becoming a teacher at Kamaile Academy
0: <laughs>
3: Sure. Um, I started out in engineering, actually, and I volunteered with a robotics competition. And it was kind of there that really piqued my interest in creating and molding these future engineers because I was so impressed by these 10-year-olds and their problem-solving abilities. So from there on, I kind of just started pursuing education and keeping engineering in the back of uh, my mind.
2: What was happening in that moment? Like what was the energy that you were feeling with those kids in that moment, Melissa?
3: Yeah, it was um, because I wasn't involved in education too much prior. um, It was just so surprising to me. And I, I felt that same energy from them. I was so, again, impressed by how they could See these real-world issues, see these um, problems that were arising in their communities, and coming forward with a proposal and mm. a plan of action for what they wanted to do. And again, being so young, these were third graders that were talking about it. I was just so thoroughly impressed that I kind of decided, okay, this is—I think this is where my journey is going to begin towards education.
2: Wow, that's that's an awesome story. What magic! <laughs> um, Raina, what's the thumbnail version of your journey that brought you to your current position at Voyager Public Charter School?
1: Well, I, I've been an educator since day one. My mom used to share stories of coming into my bedroom when I was seven, eight years old, and I would have my blackboard teaching my younger brother <laughs> math. So it, <laughs> I was born ready. So I, I taught, um, I went to CSU Channel Islands and obtained my teaching degree, several years in uh, California, and then moved out to Hawaii, where I've had um, a number of experiences and um, in different schools.
2: Mm-hmm. Wow, that's awesome. Um, the Channel Islands, that's amazing. I didn't even know that there was an institution connected to the Channel Islands. Like, what is that? What is that?
1: It's, it's not as incredible as it seems. It's actually located in Um, Camarillo, California, which is in Ventura County. So there are Channel Islands, um, but unfortunately I was there on the mainland.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Okay. So Raina, at the bottom of your resume, I discovered you have traveled to 54 countries so far. And I read a wonderful essay you wrote about teachers and travel. Um, In what ways did the arc of your life change as a result of all of your travels. And in particular, Raina, I'm interested in your macaroni and cheese pairing of teaching and travel and your concept (laughs) of bringing back instructional gold.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've been a born traveler my whole life, but really haven't had the opportunity to travel internationally until um, I was about 30 years old. So majority of my travels have been in the past 10 years or so. And I've been really fortunate and blessed to have different opportunities um, that I've been able to apply for that have been structured in specific ways that they would um, improve my instruction and, you know, enhance my teaching. There's a number of grants and teacher travel fellowships out there that um, I've come across and have been able to benefit from. And that was my intention with um, my essay was really highlighting some of the things that I've brought back and encouraging other teachers to apply for these opportunities as well.
2: Mm -hmm. And your concept of bringing back instructional gold, what did you mean by that?
1: Yeah, what I refer to instructional gold, you know, when you go on these adventures, you bring back, of course, things to share with the students, whether it's videos or mementos, you know, pictures of King Ta'angamun's tomb. Um, but really what I see as the instructional gold um, are the the stories and the experiences that I bring back. So I've been quite fortunate to visit a number of schools while I've been traveling and to see... Um, different programs they have in place, whether it's um, different arts programs or culture programs or sustainability programs, and being able to learn from these schools and bring them back to my campus um, mm. has been really rewarding.
2: Wow, that's amazing. And of all of the 54 places, I know this would be probably a hard question to answer, but what what, what is the most golden gold that you've brought back from a particular location?
1: Well, in uh, 2014, I was fortunate enough to receive a fund for um, teachers travel opportunity to go to New Zealand for six weeks hmm. with the intention of um, studying sustainability and specifically looking at their green, what they call green gold schools, schools that really excel in their sustainability programs. So not only was the country of New Zealand absolutely stunning, but being able to to speak with I had tours by students and administrators And seeing these um, programs as they played out across campus was um, truly inspiring.
2: Wow, that sounds amazing. And Melissa, at one point in the past, you were pursuing nuclear engineering in college. And assuming that all interesting things come from wonder, what were you wondering at that point that led you for a while at least towards that field?
3: Yeah, it actually came from a teacher, uh, my fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Blinn. She uh, had this activity where we had to kind of identify what we wanted to be in the future. And I was a little lost. I didn't know what I wanted to do. um, And she gave me several books and said, look at these different avenues you could go in. She knew that I was... um, more accelerated with math mm-hmm. um, so she kind of gave me that a nuclear engineering book and from then reading up on it looking into nuclear engineering programs kind of finding um, that bridge between helping people through being uh, nuclear um, m- into nuclear medicine more so mm. kind of really helped me to, hone in on what I wanted to do in terms of helping people. That's always kind of been something that was um, always within myself that I knew I wanted to help people in some way. Mm. So that's where I was, the curiosity came from. And I ended up going to U of I for uh, Mm. nuclear engineering.
2: Wow, and it always seems to come back, right, to a teacher who offers something in a particular magic moment, and then the student is sparked, and it it sounds like that's what happened to you in that moment. That's very cool. Um, So, Melissa, I I think a lot of educators and education leaders would agree that building a school culture that looks and sounds and feels like family or ohana— is a north star we should all be sailing towards. So, how has Kamali Academy gone about building that sense of family, or what we might what we might call a caring and connected community? In other words, what choices has the school made, or what choices must the school make if it desires to be an extended family for its students and its faculty and staff?
3: Yeah. So we actually have a. Number of programs at our school that really supports our students and their families. Um, and within all these programs, you know, we have all our different educators um, at different levels that are really, they have multiple hats. So we know that we're all there for the students, we know we're there for the families. Um, and for our students and their families, we have something called the Navigator Center. So it's really supporting our students, whether it's their slipper broke and they need, you know, footwear Mm -hmm. or they didn't get breakfast that day. They came late to school. They slept in. Um, Maybe it's they need some breakfast uh, first thing in the morning and they weren't able to catch it at the calf. Mm -hmm. Um, And those are just a couple of the ways that we kind of try to support our students with just in the ready to learn environment, Mm -hmm. making sure that they have all their basic needs met. Mm -hmm. so that they're able to be at school and be able to learn academically.
2: Mm. We're going to come back to the Navigator Center in a little bit. But what is your specific role in developing this caring and connected community at Kamaile?
3: Yeah, so my role, I'm an instructional coach, and I work really closely with the teachers. Um, So we have a number of teachers that are not from Hawaii, not from Oahu, even from Oahu that aren't as familiar with the coast um, on Waianae. So when we're talking and having conversations, sometimes it's, I didn't realize that there were students that um, live in certain areas that, you know, they have to share a bedroom with others, with their siblings, or they didn't know that their lives were so different when they live 20 miles away. Mm-hmm. So I think for me, having those conversations and really developing that identity as a teacher mm-hmm. um, really helps out with the students and how we can make sure we're meeting our students' needs.
2: Mm-hmm. And getting to know all the students. Everybody knows all the students, yeah, as much as possible.
3: Yes, absolutely, yes. Yeah,
2: that's very cool. Um, Reina Voyager's website states that <clears throat> kids will have opportunities to do the following, and I'm actually going to read this out all the way. Um, Embrace learning as a lifelong process, learn how to learn, be responsible for their own learning, understand what it means to be a human being and to work together with others, engage in complex thinking and problem solving, recognize and produce quality performance and results, and become contributors to their community and to the world. So I wanna focus for a minute with you on two of these. What does Voyager do day in and day out to help students understand what it means to be human.
1: That that's a great question, and you know I think that's one thing that our school does really well. We have a really small community. We have currently 275 students, K eight, and our one of our guiding principles. We have three is all one family, and I believe that everyone on campus, the students and as well as the staff, truly emulate that. You know whether. Um, it's an older student being a mentor to a younger student or seeing someone on campus that needs help. Um, so really, you know, walking the walk and, and really um, building that community um, has been essential to show that we are human.
2: Mm-hmm. And in terms of the learning that happens for all students day in and day out, what, how, how is that structured at Voyager so that kids are coming to understand what it means to be human?
1: you know, and, and, um, a lot of what we do is project-based learning. And in my classroom, I do a lot of, um, engineering design process and design thinking. And part of it, when they're moving through the process is, you know, understanding that failure is part of the process and, you know, it shouldn't be something that you can, you know, get right away that kind of working through it and, and mucking through the muck is, um, is part of being human and part of, um,
0: mm-hmm
1: you know, helping you move forward.
2: Right, right. And and what does it mean to learn how to learn? And I realize that's like such a ginormous question in education, but what does it mean to learn how to learn? And, and what does Voyager do to nurture and coach that skill?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's a, you know, really important skill. And we have different um, processes on in place on campus that really helps build that. So one thing that we embrace uh, schoolwide is the habits of mind, and also uh, a growth mindset. Growth mindset. So we mm-hmm. talk a lot about, um, you know, again keeping that positive mentality, um, as well as um, the students being at the forefront of their learning. We mm-hmm. do a lot of reflection um, on personal growth and also on our classroom community. We've embraced the Sanford Harmony SEL um program last year mm-hmm. so we have daily daily morning meetups and where you know we're focused on the students needs and our and our community as a whole
2: mm-hmm. and i also did some reading on your website about something called quantum learning i wonder if you could just briefly explain that
1: yeah quantum learning um is a a great way to again, um, check in. So we have something called um, student quality factors and teacher quality factors that we established together at the beginning of the year. And you can see them kind of as like goals um, that we're constantly striving for together. So my students set quality factors for me and um, together they set them for themselves as a students as a class. So it's um, something that we continually check in um, as a community and see how we're doing. And we check mm. we the data as well.
2: Mm. Wow, very cool, very cool. Um, Melissa, I want to return to something that you were talking about just a minute ago, the Navigation Center. Um, because of a recent conversation Uh, With a woman in San Diego who built an education consultancy called Wayfind Education, um, and she has ties to Hawaii. And a recent conversation I had, a podcast interview actually with an author who writes about the idea that knowing one's personal navigators is an essential competency for success. Um I was really struck by the role of Cozy Mendoza who works out of your Kamaili navigation center. So w- what is the significance of Cozy to the development of a caring and connected community at your school and why is Cozy's story so important to Kamaili's story?
3: Cozy Mendoza, she is our. <laughs> she's amazing. Um Everyone on campus knows Cozy right away. She is running around doing something, helping someone. Um, She is actually from the community and she really kind of has this this mission to help all families and students um, within our community. Mm -hmm. So with that, she whether it's um, helping out with housing, helping out with food, helping out with a job, she just really knows that If we don't have even our parents at a place that can support our kids, then we we want to make sure we can help to get those, um, those needs met. So she, and it's so funny because I was talking to um, her director the other day and she was just saying how, you know, Cozy does house calls that like formally, but she also does those conversations in person. She'll see them at the supermarket. She'll see them at the store, um, wherever it is. She's always just engaging with our community so much mm-hmm. that everyone really, we have parents coming in to see Cozy even. Mm. So it's it's really amazing the dynamic she has with all of our families that really just supports them mm. so much.
2: Yeah, it it really strikes me Melissa that um in some ways I mean all schools have a counseling department or at least I would think that all schools do public private and charter. Um but this sounds very different and I'm I'm wondering in this moment you know, if another school wanted, if, if someone was listening to this podcast and they're like, hmm, that would be really interesting to have on our campus, a navigation center. Is it really dependent on somebody like Cozy? Does it have to be somebody like her or is, is the, the center itself built in such a way that there are different types of people that could occupy the role that Cozy occupies now?
3: I think it, it comes down to the investment you have in the community. Cozy being from the community and firsthand experiencing what some of our parents are experiencing is what really gives that leverage for her. Um, but that whole program, the Navigator Center, our AOLA program that even helps out with um, funding for if a student's house burns down. Mm -hmm. We were able to give money to them. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of a lot of help from partnerships and being able to get that funding, get food for our students through our cakey pantry. Um, And she just, she runs the show. She's a hammer. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) she, yeah, so definitely finding someone like Cozy that has that leverage with the families, Mm -hmm. but is also just such a doer is pretty vital.
2: Yeah, that's super interesting. And how do your fellow teachers, Melissa, see you as a navigator they can turn to in specific moments?
3: Yeah. So what's great about my role is that I'm not an evaluator and we can have Um, very frank conversations with anything they want to try out new in the classroom. I say, okay, let's do it. Let's try this. Um, To even support with student conversations, Melissa, how do I have this conversation Hmm. about vaccines in my class when we have parents that don't really believe in it or believe in covid. So mm. it's kind of it's being able to help them navigate through that and have those conversations um, with my coaching role. I'm not giving too many suggestions, but really trying to help them to navigate it on their own. Mm. Um, and I, I like to tell them like, I don't want to be I don't want you to need a coach. You know, like I try to get them to really see that they know the answers, they have it in them. Similar to what we do with students, right? We know mm. that they have it in them, they know we know that they have the answer.
2: Yeah, that's that's really cool. Um, Raina, I have thought for some time now that the keys to developing a caring and connected community lie partly outside of a school's campus, especially if that outside is in nature. Um, You shared with me an art installation your fifth and sixth graders created to bring awareness to life underwater. Um, And the result, uh, based on a video you shared with me, seemed to be a collective expansion of care and connectedness for and with others and for planet Earth. It was a remarkable video. Um, So how did you and your kids achieve that? What did you guys do?
1: Yes. So we, I'm um, part of a fellowship, the NEA Foundation's Global Teacher Fellowship. And so through the fellowship, um, we were encouraged to embrace the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So that's something um, that my students have focused on for um, actually a, a full year. And so towards the spring, um, this, one of the areas that the students really honed in on was goal number 14, which is life below water. Mm-hmm. You know, we live in Hawaii. It's such a, my students go to the beach daily. It's such a, you know, a part of who they are in our community. And so um Marine debris, you know, is always a hot topic and something students were passionate about. So we were doing some research and came across an artist, Asher Jay, who had created a marine debris based installation to bring awareness. And so the students um, decided that, we, you know, we would do the same. We would bring a similar installation to Hawaii. So that's kind of where the idea was born from.
0: Hmm.
2: And I, if you can just describe, I know it's hard to do for a radio <laughs> audience, right? For for audio listeners, but if you can describe what happens if they were to watch the video, what what would they experience?
1: Okay. Of course. So um, first, I should back up and say, you know, part of it is at innovation. Our Voyager, we do a lot of collaboration and so this wouldn't have been possible without our art teacher Hmm. so um we partnered with her and so um we did the learning in class and then she kind of went from there with the students and they each took um plastic bottles and created works of art ocean-based works ocean-based works of art on these bottles and then so from there they each um spoke to the ocean they had a statement. So what you would have seen if you had come into the room is um, a lot of like lights. We had kind of flowy ocean lights and a lot of draped um, ocean colored curtains to kind of simulate the ocean. The students artwork was hanging from the ceiling and kind of swaying with the fan to emulate, you know, floating bottles floating in the water. Hmm. And then you could hear in the background um, the sounds of the waves kind of crashing And then being spoken on top of that, um, my students' pieces, their messages to the ocean.
2: Mm, Wow. So when I watched that video, I was just, I've watched it a number of times, actually, I was mesmerized by it. um, Because you're kind of, you know, I I swim every morning in the ocean, you know, long distance. And there are a couple of moments over the last couple of years where I've actually run into some kind of debris in the water, like a plastic bottle, a milk jug, or something that's blown into the water. it's a very shocking moment. When that happens, you're startled by it. And then you're like, how could this be in the ocean? Um, so I love, I love the idea that your students were working, you know, to bring that kind of awareness. And I'm, I'm curious to know, um, like what kind of reflection did you do with them once the installation was in and people had experienced the installation?
1: Of course. Yeah, we did. We, um, did reflect independently on, on their their piece of the project, students to kind of took on different components to help, you know, piece it all together. There were a lot of moving pieces. And then, um, you know, a big piece of it was getting feedback from the audience. We happened to have it on display during our um, student led conferences. So the entire school community and even some of our partners from the nonprofits that we partner with were invited to come. Mm -hmm. And so getting that feedback from them Um, was really powerful for the students.
2: Yeah, sounds like a a full-on public exhibition of learning in every way, shape, and form. Definitely. So that's awesome. So everybody, let's take a minute to reintroduce today's guests. Raina Fairchild and Melissa Montoya are two of our Hawaii Charter School educators and members of the current Hawaii State Teacher Fellows cohort. So um, I am reading a book right now about the TV show Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood um, and the ways that Fred Rogers nurtured an innate sense of wonder in children over more than 30 years of episodes. Um, So, Reina, I'm going to start with you. There is a section in your resume where you list qualifications, grants, and involvements. And your list is, frankly, astonishing. I kept scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and couldn't seem to reach the end of it. What that list suggests to me is a remarkable sense of wonder and curiosity about the world and your role in it. So what are one or two of the items on your list that demonstrate that sense of wonder and curiosity?
1: Oh, great question. You know, one that comes to mind right away is it was when... um, probably my third year teaching. So quite a number of years ago, there was an opportunity I saw advertised to be part of Seymour's teacher at sea program. And that's something, you know, I, I didn't have any experience at sea. I wasn't sure if I would spend the entire time seasick, but I went ahead and applied for it, you know, just to be out on the ocean and to learn from scientists. And it was such a powerful experience, you know, having, being able to be part of the entire operation, whether it's, you know, sending down the CTD array to collect samples or having breakfast next to a scientist and getting to talk story. Um, it was a really powerful experience that I'm really glad, you know, I kind of took that jump Mm -hmm. to seek the -hmm. opportunity.
2: And And then
1: actually,
2: Mm -hmm. yeah, another one.
1: Um, I'm, I'm no. Actually, part of that experience at the end, um, just out of natural discussion around the dinner table, scientists were had different theories on whether if you send an egg down, down below, if it would crack or not. And so, on the last day, we got permission from the head scientists, the three teachers, to um, conduct our own inquiry and experience. <laughs> and so, we got to send eggs down to the depths of the sea. And it came up and all the scientists stayed up till midnight to see the results. And uh, two of the three eggs made it. So we had them for breakfast. But just, (laughs) you know, even being on board, like, you know, nurturing our sense of curiosity. um, It was an all round awesome experience.
2: Wow. I I wish I had been a fly on the wall as you were talking about that around the table, whatever, (laughs) wherever you were doing that. That must have been quite a conversation. Yeah. (laughs) So... Melissa, you shared a cover letter you wrote for a position at the University of Hawaii Institute for Astronomy Research Experience for Teachers. Um, And in that letter, you talked about igniting in kids a love for sciences. Ignite is a powerful word to me, and especially in the context of astronomy and rocket engines and space and all that kind of thing. And so what is the role of an educator who wants to ignite wonder and curiosity and a love of learning in young people. And I realize that's a big question.
3: I think for for me as an educator and when I was in the classroom and something I tell um, my current science teachers now that I work with, um, just really making sure that we're trying to pique interest of our students, seeing what's relevant to them. And one of those things that they were really interested in over and over again, year after year, um, and though it wasn't part of our curriculum was astronomy they Mm -hmm. there was so much curiosity from so many kids over the years that wanted to know more about astronomy so for me it was kind of okay what can we how do we embed that how do we nurture that um that curiosity for our students Um, and in terms of igniting that science passion really trying to make sure that we support them. Mm -hmm. So our freshman year, we had science fair, and students would always want to do something with astronomy, which is a little more difficult. Um, But it was just trying to find partnerships, trying to find information on how we can really support our students to be successful in navigating that curiosity. So um, whether it's it's just saying, okay, I will support you with this and making sure that students understand that they are able to pursue something they're interested in. Mm -hmm. Um, or even for, for sciences, science can sometimes be overwhelming for kids and they may have not had the best experiences prior. So really just trying to show them that there is a science field for everyone, Mm -hmm. showing that there is so much to learn. And that's why I love science so much because it's always evolving. It's always changing. There's always something to read and learn about. Mm -hmm. So that's where I kind of try to um, evoke that with my students as well.
2: Mm. I remember in in middle school and high school for me, which was a very long time ago, that um, the sciences were very painful for me as subjects. I didn't, I didn't do well. Um, and they were typically taught, you know, sage on the stage. I was talked at a lot and I didn't understand and couldn't find a way to care about it. But I realized later that growing up, you know, in Kahulu, um, on Kaneohe Bay, um, that all of my science was actually happening outdoors. Um, every day, all day long, there were things happening, but it was all outside of school. Um, so that's, that's super interesting, Melissa. you um, your Your resume lists several librarian positions at different schools, public and private. Um, For just a minute, let me pretend that I am a new principal in West Oahu at a big middle school with a big but very outdated library with nothing in it but rows of metal shelves and mostly stacks of old encyclopedias and the kids never go there. it's just you and me, and we're having coffee and talking about what a twenty first century school library might look and sound and feel like. So, what are your thoughts about this? And who would you want involved in the process of remaking and reimagining this library space?
1: Oh, that's a that's a wonderful question. In my um, last semester. Of my getting my master's degree in library science I actually took an independent study on designing uh, library spaces so we could we could if you and I were having coffee we would be talking all morning about this <laughs> <laughs> but yeah the the 21st century library is definitely not you know the silent library of you know days past you would definitely want students in there so um, having resources, to, you know, provide them with what they need, whether that be, you know, access to technology or, you know, um, high quality, you know, digital resources, as well as print materials. But I would definitely envision, you know, a space for students to work on projects, um, that they deem essential, whether mm-hmm. that be something 3D printing or whether that be, you know, just, um, uh, open space with a projector available or a a screen available if students need, you know, to collaborate, maybe a whiteboard table so they could get busy and make notes. Um, So really, yeah, harnessing that, um, their their energy and their ability to collaborate and making that um, Mm. a library space conducive to that.
2: So I'm pretty sure, Reina, that um, I'm going to have a hard time, especially as a new principal, convincing some faculty members to think outside of that box, uh, you know, that, that they've been in maybe all of their lives. Libraries are for books, and they're supposed to be quiet spaces of study. Um, how do I go about having that conversation with them?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I understand how that can be a difficult conversation. And, you know, there could be, you know, it doesn't, you can show examples and you can kind of show data, but really a piece of it is just kind of taking that first step and perhaps even making, you know, somewhat small changes and um, letting others see the benefits and see the students' excitement. Um, That will definitely, that will definitely come.
2: Mm-hmm. I want to enroll them in the process. And I think that's where my worry is, is that, you know, it's, it's always good to be inclusive and to bring more voices into the process of reimagining a space like that. But what happens if they come in and, and basically their voices say, well, we should have, you know, books, we need all the books in here. That's, that's my concern. What are your, what are your thoughts about that?
1: Well, I think that's where um, myself as a librarian and, you know, my skills would really come into play, having those meetings, whether it be um, with grade level teams or school wide to kind of get an understanding of um, what their syllabus is, is is for the year and wh- what their plan is, and then finding ways um, to support their projects mm-hmm. and, you know, really Advertise the space as you know a, a benefit not only to the students but also to support their work in the classroom as educators.
2: Mm-hmm. It sounds almost like we would be creating a navigation center for the kinds of cool innovations that are happening on campus and reconceptualizing the library in the process, right?
1: Absolutely, yeah,
2: yeah. That's that's so interesting, um, Melissa. I, I want to talk about. Um, a theory of change called small steps. So small steps that oftentimes can lead to big, even transformational change. Um, The term accountability can often in school settings have negative connotations, but you took a small step and implemented something called accountability buddies on your Kamaile Academy campus. So what was that all about and, and what was the result?
3: Yes. So this was actually um, with our executive leadership meeting um, that is administrators, our curriculum team, and then as lead coach, I am also at that meeting. And with everything that happened this year, um, some of our Asks, our wants, our needs were kind of being overlooked. So I wanted to make sure that, hey, we got answers for our teachers um, so that they can help support the students. So part of that was saying, okay, guys, let's create a new role. Um, and it was, Melissa, are you willing to be this role? I said, yes, absolutely. I'm still the role as the accountability buddy mm-hmm. for our executive leadership meeting, um, and just that follow-up, that like gentle nudge of, hey, did you find out about this? Were you able to answer this? Um, And so on. So it it helped. We kept it the entire year. We tried it out for second quarter, and we're still doing it now. It's something that we've put into our agenda items to just make sure that we're all... moving forward, um, because our teams didn't want to be stuck either. So Mm. it really was helpful to everyone. And it wasn't meant to be intimidating in any way. It was just a friendly reminder, a friendly nudge.
2: And what were the what were some of the results that you saw as people gently nudged each other to be accountable?
3: Yeah, I think it was just getting those answers and people not seeing it as intimidating. Um, I think the follow up of, like, oh no, I forgot this. Oh no, I forgot that. With so much going on right now, it was just, again, just trying to say, like, this is a safe place for us. This is our safe place to have these discussions. Um, and we were able to get our answers that we needed for our teachers or for supporting our students.
2: Hmm. It sounds like. This accountability buddy system actually contributed to a a more caring and connected community at commodity. Is that a fair statement?
3: Yeah, definitely. Like I said, it was just trying to make sure that we saw it as Mm non-threatening. So it really did contribute in that way.
2: Yeah, and it is really a small step that any campus can take. It's not like a massive change where somebody waves a magic wand and says, you know, we're gonna be X instead of Y and everybody sort of freaks out. It's just um, a small step and, and everybody can move forward with it. That's very, very cool. So, hey, everybody, stay with us. After this short break, we will come back with more questions for Reina and Melissa. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you.
0: Hawaii's business people and professionals want to support our public high school students across the state, like me, Law Yakovich, a senior at Kuku High School. And Hawaii's teachers and other educators want classroom speakers, curriculum advice, contest judges, mentors, and other support from businesses and nonprofits. The Climb High Bridge is Hawaii Department of Education's official platform to connect the two communities. It's like Match.com, specifically designed to connect businesses and schools. Learn more by sending an email to info at That's spelled C L I M B H I.org.
1: Hi, friends. Toy Hirschman here from the Entre Ed Talk Podcast. I am super excited to support the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast hosted by none other than the amazing Josh Rapoon. And I also want to give a big shout out to all of the incredible educators in Hawaii who are doing unreal things in the entrepreneurship and design-based thinking spaces. I hope you all subscribe and listen to What School Could Be in Hawaii. And also, hey, why not check out the Entre Ed Talk podcast where we interview stellar entrepreneurial educators and entrepreneurs from across the country and globe. I cannot wait to connect with you.
2: Hey everyone, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast, and we are back with Raina Fairchild and Melissa Montoya, two members of the current Hawaii State Teacher Fellows cohort. So Raina, you shared with me something called the 2016 Mental Floss Innovations in Teaching Platypus Award. I almost gave my daughter, Emma, her middle name as platypus. Um, That would have gotten me divorced, but so that's why (laughs) I didn't um, as her middle name, because the platypus was actually my favorite animal as a child. Um, So this really caught my attention, as you can imagine. Um, But... Really what caught even more of my attention was the idea that school is in, but class is outside. So what was it that Mental Floss highlighted in your work? And they did this in a in a magazine spread that you shared with me.
1: Yeah, correct. So I, I was nominated for this award every year. The Platypus Award is in a different field. It's been in sound and taste. And in 2016, it happened to be in education. So they um, awarded 10 educators across the country with this award. And so I was nominated. Um, I'm actually not sure who nominated me, a former you know, colleague or parent, maybe student. But I got a call from an editor from the magazine and we spent over an hour on the phone. She was just asking questions and taking notes. And so I actually didn't know what the spread was going to be about. So it was really awesome for me to see when the spread came out in the magazine and to see the graphic designers, you know, work in images and um, the author's words. Um, so it was really cool to see me encapsulated as an educator on this page. And yeah, they did pick the tagline um, where school is in, but classes outside to um, really highlight that I do a lot of um, outdoor environmental ed projects with my students.
2: And what were the, what were some of the specific things that they mentioned in that spread about the work that you were doing?
1: Yeah. So um, when I was teaching on Big Island, there was a local beach called Alu Beach that um, a lot of tourists go to. And so while we were studying um, oceanography, my students got trained as reef te- teach uh, volunteers. And so we would go down to the beach on a weekly basis and they would volunteer their time and they would educate the tourists on the beach um, about, you know, different ways to care for our coral reef. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a really a great long-term project. Uh, we also were studying the cloud forest in Waimea. And so the students devised um, these inquiry projects like one was um, they noticed that the moss was really absorbent when they squeezed it out so mm. then they decided to um, study you know verse, the moss versus a, an artificial sponge and see which could hold retain more water so we ended up getting a grant to get those books published um, and so we had a book release party for those Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see another one we were studying forces of nature uh one year uh, again on big island and so what the students did is we looked at our school's per- earthquake preparedness and we figured out that it was only about 20 percent of students that had an earthquake preparedness kit sent in from home mm. so they did a lot of promotion within the school and we got to where 100 percent of students had an earthquake kit Wow, and then we ended up uh, filming PSAs about earthquakes and tsunamis that were aired on on TV stations.
2: Hmm. I, I have no earthquake kit at home. I have no tsunami kit. I don't even know that I have a flashlight that works and I feel shame in this moment. <laughs> you, I need your kids here to convince me to do the right thing here. Um, but that's, that's really fantastic. And if I might ask why the platypus, why, why do they have that as the emblem of the award?
1: Yeah, the, the way it was described to me is that the platypus um, is the nature's most unique animal. So they were literally looking for unique, inter- innovative, interdisciplinary geniuses is how it was written. So, um, you know, these are people in the field kind of really stretching, stretching the box.
2: Mm, that's so interesting. My, my daughter has is, is now a teacher. Um, the apple does not fall far from the tree. Um, and uh, she's a nature educator. And I'm thinking her middle name should have been Platypus. I should have won out on that one. <laughs> um, so Melissa, you, you worked as a STEM educator at Waipahu High School for five years. And Waipahu has gotten a lot of attention um, here in Hawaii as a place where innovation and design thinking are front and center so, what was your experience at Waipahu, and, and what is school leadership doing there to foster a culture of innovation?
3: Yeah, so I it, it's interesting because when I um, moved here, I'm from Chicago originally. Um, Waipahu was the only school I worked at for um, seven years, and when I started, we weren't we didn't have this academy focus. Mm-hmm. Um, and then by the time I ended my time there. Um, there was a very strong Academy focus, um, the first school to be wall to wall academies. Um, and it's such a giant school in comparison to the school I'm at now, um, where that leadership had to be strong. That focus had to be strong for that dream to really come alive. So I know that, um, principal Hayashi, he has a very strong team with him. I had really great relationships with my assistant principals there. Um, and I know that they were just so supportive of anything and everything we did. Mm -hmm. Um, one VP that we had that came in, um, new to our school, she said, Oh, I heard you're doing this, this, and this. And I was just excited as a classroom teacher to be like, Oh yeah, I'm so glad you're taking so much interest in what we're doing with our kids right off the bat. Mm -hmm. So I think that, is, plays a huge role in terms of getting that dream to really come alive at Waipahu.
2: Mm, yeah, that's fantastic to have a school administrator, you know, checking into what you're doing. That's really what it's all about, actually. Um, so it sounds to me like the academy model, which was developed towards the end of your time, was a response to how large Waipahu High School was and is and that it was it was a way of innovating through that largeness into something that was a little bit more like a house system um where students would be within a cohort that would go through a particular academy is is that a fair assessment of what was happening
3: Yes. Um, so for the freshmen and sophomores, the ninth and 10th graders, they were actually in houses so that we did have a teacher team, um, Mm. that had the same students. And then when they moved into 11th and 12th grade years, it was a little more independent, but within the academy system, it's making sure that all the teachers have the same students regardless. So we definitely see them from ninth grade to 12th grade, um, at any event that academy has, um, and so forth.
2: That's awesome. So um, I want to talk about building capacity for innovation through teacher leadership and your selection to be in the 2020 through 2022 Hawaii State Teacher uh, Fellows um, or Fellowship Program. And and huge thanks to Kristen Brummel for her partnership with me um, and helping to connect with you and with other um, teacher leaders on other projects. So um, Melissa, I'm going to start with you. What are, what are your goals as a teacher leader, both in your Kamaile community and in the greater education community?
3: I think at um, Kamaile, because it was such a change of pace for me, and that was something that I was interested in, like I said, I only knew Waipahu. And I said, you know, I need to learn more. I want to learn more about even um, pre-K through eight, I didn't have any um. Association with prior to going to Kamale. So I went to this new school. Our secondary program is only 200. 200- And fifty kids. Mm -hmm. So I went from the school of three thousand nine through twelve to two hundred fifty seven through twelve. So in terms of innovation, just looking at how we can really um, bridge what we're doing at each of the schools. I don't think charter is too different than the public schools, but we do have a little more agency about what we can do um, for our students and how we can develop them. So something that's really important to our school is our defense system and making sure those students are following um, that no do reflect piece. And I think that reflection, that metacognitive um, reflection is super important for them to really establish moving forward. Mm -hmm. So what I would like to see is for that to happen um, in other schools and public schools and really trying to make sure that we are bridging those um, as much as possible.
2: And what opportunities does the fellowship give you to do that kind of outside of Kamali work where you're developing that sense of innovation um, in other schools?
3: Yeah. So what's great about the fellowship is we're across the whole state. We have, um, multiple islands with us. Of the 21, me and Reina are the only ones at our charter school. So we do have those DOE connections and we can kind of help to bridge those gaps. Um, sometimes we don't really uh, hear what is happening with DOE. Mm-hmm. So we just want to make sure we have those connections, we have that communication. And I think that's what's really important for me coming from a DOE public school and then going to a charter school.
2: Mm. So it sounds like what happened with that principal, that vice principal at Waipahu who was checking in on what you were doing, that's something that you'll be doing out in the community is finding out what others are working on and then you, you kind of take it forward with you.
3: Absolutely. I really think that for me, it's looking at all the different pieces and trying to make the best of it. Mm. So that's been something that I did when I was in the classroom and now even.
2: Yeah, that's great. So Raina, what has happened so far in in your cohort and, and what do you see as your teacher leader role?
1: Yeah. So, um, So much has come out of it. You know, I do a lot of professional development. I'm involved in, I think, currently like five different cohorts nationally and globally. But this one um, is really special. You know, number one, it's um, all Hawaii educators. So it's in our local community. Um, Everyone in the cohort is super passionate and christy and Kristen, that lead our group you know are, are always there to to offer support and kind of give us a nudge you know to keep growing so, so far um we've had the opportunity to publish a piece the essay that what we discussed earlier was um, an essay i wrote to be published um as part of the cohort we're also being encouraged um, to create passion projects, either independently or in small groups. Um, last weekend, we were part of the Choose Love 2.0 mm, um, yeah. virtual conference. Mm-hmm. That was really neat to to you know serve as a moderator and lead a a colleague roundtable in that sense. Um, Next week, Melissa and I are, I'm doing my first Twitter chat, which is something (laughs) new to me. So we'll be part of the 808 Educates Twitter chat. So all these different opportunities, you know, that have kind of arisen, Mm. which I I feel really fortunate to be part of.
2: Mm. I was so encouraged, Raina, when the um, Choose Love 1.0 sold out in what seemed like minutes, and then 2.0 sold out again in what what felt like minutes. And that just makes me feel like we're making progress in Hawaii when so many educators, um, you know, want to participate in something like that. And I did a podcast episode with Stacey Kunihisa about her her Choose Love um, interest and and what she's done to bring it to her campus and to open up that conference. So that's fantastic. I'm I'm super excited about that. So um, as we come down towards the end here, um, just a couple more questions. Um, This one's kind of a big one. But the Hawaii State Legislature passed the state's charter school law um, in 1994, and has originally passed the law authorized up to 25 existing schools to become student-centered schools as charter schools. And the state's first such school opened actually in 1995. And now we have 37 charter schools on all islands. So to each of you, um, in what ways have your schools served as demonstrations of student centered learning, um, and as, you know, student-centered communities. So, Raina, let's have you respond first.
1: Yeah, so I've I've been really fortunate to be um, part of three different charter school communities here in Hawaii, Mm -hmm. dating back to uh, 2007 when I first started. And I came from um, a typical uh, school in California where I had 35 students and um, it was very much focused on improving test scores. So um, coming to Innovations Public Charter was like a breath of fresh air where the focus truly was on um, student-centered learning, you know, embedding the arts was wasn't, you know, something that if there's time for it after we do math, but something that was really viewed as essential part of our learning that really, um, shaped my way of thinking mm-hmm. and, um, and challenged me. And, you know, I have been in a number of different schools over the years, but, um, I always come, come back to charter just, um, yeah, I, I really like it, the work that's being done. You know, there's that, that kind of, Uh, encouragement to kind of, you know, seek out the next thing, you know, and what could be, which mm-hmm. is really exciting.
2: Mm-hmm. I think that's what's most encouraging for me about our charters here in Hawaii is that we don't have happening what happens so often on the mainland, which is a war between charters and public schools or private schools um, that our charters have um, seamlessly, well, maybe not seamlessly, but to a considerable extent have woven themselves into the fabric of education here in Hawaii uh, in very uh, you know, productive ways. So, Melissa, what are your thoughts about how Um, is serving as a student-centered school and as a demonstration school to others?
3: Sure. I mean, like we were talking before, it really started with what are our students' basic needs and are they being met? And that happened through our Navigator Center. Mm -hmm. And moving through, um, our school is... Uh, In improvement. So we are trying to make sure that we're still having those high quality instruction classrooms where I come in and I support our teachers to make sure that they are student centered and student relevant. Um, Being a Hawaiian focused charter school, we do focus um, on really that the whole child and making those culturally Mm -hmm. relevant um, decisions when we are giving instruction so that's something that I help out with. Here's our curriculum. Okay, now how can we bridge this for our students specifically? How can we uplift our Hawaiian community and make sure that we are really um, honing in on our host culture here?
2: Mm. And I hope that if there are any listeners out there, Melissa, who are thinking, I'd like to know more about whole child approaches to education, that they would think, maybe I should make a trip out to Waianae to Kamaila. And to to talk to you about that—that's really my hope um, for you know podcasts like this—is that it it serves as a as a way to connect people if they want to know more. So that's that's fantastic. So um, we have come down to the end here. While wow, this time has gone by so fast, um, so I want to end on a fun note. So Reyna, you and I share something in common. Um, way back in two thousand and one, when I was teaching at La Pietra Hawaii School for Girls. I and my U.S. history students put President Abraham Lincoln on trial, and the trial actually <laughs> happened in a real courtroom downtown in front of a real judge, Judge Michael Town. Um, we put Lincoln on trial for violating or suspending habeas corpus during the at the beginning of the Civil War. So in the midst of all of the wonderful material you provided for me for my prep, I discovered that you and your students had put Yertle of the Turtle on trial <laughs> in a real courtroom, and I assume it presided over by a real judge. And I was like, "What, Yurtle the Turtle on trial?" Like I read every Dr. Seuss book, you know. So uh, our listeners, Reina, are dying to know what was wh- what were Yurtle's crimes, and how did you <laughs> how did you and your kids carry out the trial?
1: Yeah, of course. So that happened to be we were um, studying uh, government, so we we're studying different forms of government. That was a semester long unit, and so when it came to looking at the three branches of government um, we really wanted to find a way to bring the judicial system home to the kids in a powerful way mm-hmm. so um, we we had read Yertle the Turtle in another sense looking at it um, as a form um, an allegory to to dictatorship so we had we had the book there mm-hmm. and we ended up using that book um, in like a civil case so when he he's way up high and at the end when the turtle stack collapse collapses and everyone, um, falls down, there was a turtle Sadie that gets injured. So we took it from, from that sense. So we had, um, the students all took on different roles and they were very serious with it. The different, um, attorneys would, you know, prep their witnesses, prep their witnesses. And,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. um, we did have a judge presiding and one of our students acted as judge, Parents came; they were the jury, so that was really great to see when the parents, you know, voted against their their, their child. Right. But it was awesome, and it was actually filmed on um, the closed circuit court TV, oh. so we got to watch it back in the classroom as an actual court case.
2: Wow, that's that's literally one of the most creative things I've ever heard um, in an education setting. You know, in in my trial. Um, Raina, my prosecuting attorney actually stepped out of the courtroom at the very beginning for a minute. And I wasn't sure why. And she'd actually gone outside to throw up in a trash can because she was so stressed about putting Lincoln on trial, um, you know, and then she stepped back in, she was all composed and stepped up to the, you know, to the podium and began her prosecution. So you never know what's going to happen in situations like that, but that's a, that's a great thing. And thank you for sharing that story. So, Um, Melissa, you shared with me a professional paper titled Gravimetric Detection of Earth's Rotation Using Crowdsourced Smartphone Observations. So that scientific paper, Melissa, which I actually tried to read, um, Made my brain <laughs> hurt. like i was I was halfway through it, and I thought, I don't think I've understood a single sentence in this whole thing. Um, so, but your name is listed as a contributor at the end, which is awesome. And so, what was your role in this research paper while you were at Waipahu High School? And I gather it involved citizens science.
3: Yes. So um, this individual, Sten Odenwald from NASA, he posted on LinkedIn that he had this citizen science project um, and he needed students from all over the world uh, to collect data on smartphones. And I was like, okay, we can do this. Students have smartphones. I have a smartphone. We have iPads. We'll figure it out. Mm -hmm. Um, So part of it was. And for me, again, trying to tap into that astronomy field, um, that is something that I'm not fluent in, um, but really trying to expose our students, just give the opportunity to say, hey, we're gonna work with this scientist from NASA. Um, So part of it was just collecting data and analyzing data, which is something that we do through the scientific and engineering processes. So um, really trying to show students how this is something that even NASA scientists do every day, Mm -hmm. um, where we got to have my different classes take data, um, and being from Hawaii looking at gravity specifically and what our gravitational pool is here. Um, So it was fun to be a part of. I was really excited um, for that opportunity for my students.
2: That was was just amazing. Um, And to think Just to think, Melissa, about how incredible it must be, or it must have been for students to be able to look at that kind of data. You talk about real-world learning. Um, And also, apparently, the end result of this is that a determination was made that you can get very accurate data from cell phones using their sensors, um, data that helps understand the Earth's rotation, right?
3: Yes, yes.
2: So it looks like I may have understood the paper after all.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's part of it, right? Every kid, or not every kid, but we have access to it. We have access to these different sensors. So really being able to see that and for students to take it and say, okay, this is what I want to do for my science and engineering project Mm. um, was really fun for me.
2: Yeah, that's super awesome. So Raina and Melissa, thank you for this time today. Please stay safe. And I hope you get some well-deserved rest in a few weeks once this crazy school year is finished. We really appreciate you being on the podcast today.
3: Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Josh.
2: Thanks. Recently, I started the new way to end my episodes. I'm a great admirer of Hawaii Business Magazine, which does a series each year called 20 for the Next 20. This series highlights mostly younger folks in Hawaii who will be powerful voices for good in the next 20 years. I will end each episode by highlighting one of these amazing individuals. Kara Jabola Karoulas is a fierce advocate for women and girls as leader of the State Commission on the Status of Women. She has helped pass legislation to prohibit employers from asking about applicants' pay histories and to codify Title IX into state law. She's also worked to allow individuals to designate their gender as X on their driver's licenses and for people convicted of prostitution to have their convictions vacated if they meet certain requirements. Jabola Carolus grew up as in an immigrant family in Southern California. She studied international politics at New York University and received a law degree from University of Hawaii at Manoa. She led efforts during the pandemic to distribute laptops to single mothers and created a state feminist economic recovery plan in collaboration with community members. Jabola Carolus is one of the reasons why Hawaii is a Thousand points of light. Thank you for all the work you are doing to support women and girls in our community. This podcast is inspired by the book What School Could Be. Please join the newly launched What School Could Be virtual community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. The What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Your host is me, Josh Josh Rapun, My editor, show consultant, and sound engineer is Daniel Gilad at DG Sound Creations. To learn more about Daniel or to hire him for your next music gig, see our show notes where you will find his Facebook and website URL. This series is funded by education change agent Ted Dentersmith, executive producer of the documentary film Most Likely to Succeed, and author of the best-selling book, What School Could Be. Send your feedback to Hawaii at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at MLTS in Hawaii and at Josh Rapun. Finally, please like our Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii Facebook page and YouTube channel. Friends, stay safe. Wear a mask, stay physically distant from one another, and for the love of the gods, get vaccinated. Most of all, please bring kindness and compassion into the world. We need a surplus of both right now. Until the next episode, ahuiho, and we will see you soon.